Let's uh, jump into this morning's message. And yes, it's Mother's Day, which is why I'm going to start with an apology, because I'm going to start with a football illustration. All right? So moms, if you love football, this is right up your alley. But for any of you that's not, just bear with me, because it's not really about football. My, one of my best friends, his name is Leo. He is an avid Detroit Lions fan. All right? he, he, he's so much of a fan that he knows who they draft in April. He uh, participates on fan forums uh, for the Lions. He could tell you probably all the names of their assistant coaches. I mean, this guy is a fan through and through. However, Leo is also a pastor, which means he doesn't often get to see the Lions games on Sunday. And so he records them. But I find this humorous in that if he, he intentionally goes and finds out whether they won or lost. Because if they lost, he's not bothering watching the film. He's just going to delete the recording. Like, why bother? Because he knows he could watch it. And uh, yeah, Matthew Stafford might have some, you know, 80-long, you know, drive, you know, long bomb and big touchdown. But it, it doesn't matter because they're going to lose. But if they win, you bet he's going to find three hours out of his day to go and watch this. And what it does is when the Lions get flagged or, you know, the other team scores, Leo just sits back and goes, it's no big deal because they win. Have you ever had a moment like that? Maybe it was watching a TV show or a movie and it's getting really tense and you're wondering, like, is the protagonist going to make it? Is he or she going to live? And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait, there's a whole other season. Like, they, they made another movie. Like, of course he lives. I mean, you need him to be in the next movie. And so you just kind of sit back and relax. Anyone ever done that? That's a little bit of what we're going to do today. T today, we're going to look at a story that's great. It's a love story. It's perfect on Mother's Day. And yet it is set in a really bad time. And what I'm afraid might happen is what happens when my Kansas City Royals hit a home run. I know it's not worth anything because they're still going to lose the game. They've been losing a lot this year. But I don't want you to have a pessimistic attitude. I want you to realize that, yes, today's story is set in a really horrible time. But yet, rather than just go, it doesn't matter. Instead, I hope you'd realize that this is still God working. The, the context for today's story takes place during the book of Judges, the, the era of the Judges. We just finished with Joshua and the battle at Jericho. And then after Joshua passed, God did not raise up another leader like Moses and Joshua. He began to use these various judges. But Israel really struggled during this time. It got really, really bad. In fact, it's so bad, I'm going to let this video explain it to you. Something fun in the middle of such a bad situation. It really was. If you go into the book of Judges, you see some absolutely horrible things. And yet, even though it looks like a loss, in the middle of it is this story about Ruth. And what I want it to do is to remind us that no matter how dark life gets, no matter what kind of cycle we seem to find ourselves in, God does not abandon us. He's with us and he loves us. And so whether you walked in today on this Mother's Day just beaming from ear to ear, it's a great day, the sun's out, life is good, or you walked in here with a dark soul and it's just cloudy and you don't know how you're going to go forth. What I want you to hear today is that God loves you. And we're going to see that powerfully through the story of Ruth. And so, Father, as we get ready to jump into the scriptures, may you be our teacher today. Open it up. Help us to get into the story to really get into you. Help us to see Jesus so clearly and how much you love us. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. So if you brought a Bible, open it up to Ruth, the book of Ruth. If you're not quite sure where Ruth is, there's a little cheat sheet up on the screen for you. You can use that to help uh, find it. Um, and uh, uh, if you don't have a Bible, I've got the uh, scripture up on the screen uh, for you. Um, as you're turning to Ruth, uh, I'll just confess, we're skipping the book of Judges. I, I, I didn't want to. I like the book of Judges, okay? Uh, as, as, we, as I've got this goal to do the entire Bible in a sense and show how it all points to Jesus, and then my goal is to finish it by Thanksgiving, it just meant that certain sacrifices had to be made. And so, sorry Gideon, and sorry Samson and Delilah, and Sorry, Ehud, and all these other really cool, crazy stories, but we're not going to get into it. So if you're doing the Bible reading plan along with us, you're going to get uh, into Judges a little bit. Totally feel free to jump in there and read all the craziness for yourself. Uh, just don't read it aloud with your children before bed. I'll just warn you on that. Um, but do uh, get into it and find out. But even though we're not going to do the book of Judges, we're still in the time of Judges. Ruth happens early in the, the season of the Judges. And we're going to see the story that takes place. Ruth chapter 1, let's start right at the very beginning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malone and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malone and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So during this cycle of apostasy, when the people would not follow God, he would allow judgment to come to them. Remember, they're in the promised land. This is supposed to be the land that's to flow with milk and honey. And yet, when they're not following God, he allows it to not flow with milk and honey. He allows it to go into a famine. One of these famines got so bad that Elimelech's like, I'm done. So much for this promised land. Let's go. And so they pack up. They go around the Dead Sea over into Moab, where they hoped for a better life. Uh, but they didn't get much of a better life. A few years into it, Elimelech dies. Uh, his two sons then have to start caring for mom. They take on wives, and then they too die. And they actually die childless. And so you're left with these three widows, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. Naomi, as a foreigner into Moab, now a widow, knows she probably isn't going to survive in Moab. And so she needs to head home. And so she tells her daughter-in-law, hey, I'm going to go back to Israel. I, I heard that there's actually food again. I, I'm going to go back there. You, you ladies, you're still young. Go back to your houses. You'll find other husbands. Go back and have a good life. But I'm going to go there. Well, the ladies, they loved Naomi. And they cried. But Orpah ends up deciding, all right, I'll go back. But, but Ruth stays. In fact, here's how it, how it goes. Uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. So the three ladies are talking and they're, they're crying. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, kissing her goodbye, because, you know, Orpah's got a talk show host uh, that she's going to have back home. But Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, 
See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Basically, Ruth is changing her identity. She no longer wants to identify as a Moabite. She's now saying, I want to be an Israelite. I want to follow you. I'm going to attach myself to you. This is an incredibly caring heart. Because normally, if you're a widowed, your family takes care of you. And Ruth sees her and says, you have no family but me. And so she basically is saying, I'll leave my family behind. I will be your family. And I will go so far as to even take your God as my God. She, in a sense, is converting and saying, I'm following you. I'm going with you. I'm serving your God. And so these two ladies make the return trip back around the Dead Sea, back to Israel. And I want you to think about it for a second. Two widows coming into Bethlehem. And yes, it's that Bethlehem from the, all the Christmas stories. They have no job. They're poor. They have no men to provide for them. And Ruth is a Moabite. You've got to understand just how negative that is. The, the Moabites are a result of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. You can go and read about it in Genesis 19. And so already Israel kind of looks down and disrespects them. If you go into Judges 3, you see that the Moabites actually ruled over Israel for 18 years. And then Israel overthrew them in a really horrific, gross story. So you can tell there's not a lot of love between these two nations. So it's safe to assume that being a poor, widowed woman who's also a Moabite, Ruth is prime for discrimination. And yet, despite the discrimination... She's got to find food. They have to live and survive. Now, in Israeli culture, God had set up the law that when the harvesters would go into the field, they were supposed to leave the corners. And they were only supposed to glean through the field once so that the poor could come and they could harvest for themselves, that they would work, but there would be something for them. And so Ruth, probably learning this from Naomi, it's like, all right, I got to head out. In fact, you can read it in chapter 2. Skip verse 1 for a second. Go to verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, I want you to notice that little phrase there. She happened. There's a couple of times in the story where you stumble across that phrase where it just so happened. But do you realize that almost all the stories that we love have just so happened moments? I mean, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or Sherlock Holmes or Anne of Green Gables. I mean, pick any story, beloved story. There's probably going to be a just so happened moment. It's just the difference between a good story and a bad story 
is that the bad stories kind of leave their just-so-happened moments exposed. It's like you're, you're watching this, the, the movie or you're reading the book, and all of a sudden you come to a moment, and you're like, are you kidding me? Really? Like, you can just tell the author got lost, didn't know what to do, and so just created some moment. Or they had an idea in mind, kind of got lost in the way of how am I going to get there, so they create this just-so-happened moment. And you kind of roll your eyes like, oh, that's painful. But the good stories, their just-so-happened moments are so natural, you barely even notice them. God, the greatest author of all, is writing this true life story. And he's directing everything going on here. And Ruth just so happened to come to the field of Boaz. So we have to stop and ask ourselves, all right, so who's this Boaz? Well, we actually meet him back in verse 1, the verse that we skipped. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Uh, so Boaz is family. He, he was kin to Elimelech. And that's going to be very, very important. We're going to come into that in a minute. But what I want you to know is what Boaz does. When Boaz shows up on the scene, he sees Ruth. He's never seen her before. So he asks and inquires, discovers it's Ruth who's with Naomi. He's heard the stories. He heard Naomi has come back. You see, in Jewish culture, family was everything. I mean, here in Iowa, family is really, really important. But compared to the ancient Jews... Family's nothing. Like, family was everything to them. And because of that, family took care of family. And so when Boaz hears that Ruth, who's a Moabite, has basically left her entire heritage, culture, family to attach herself to Naomi, he now considers Ruth family. And so because family takes care of family, you suddenly see Boaz being incredibly generous. He, he tells Ruth, hey, don't glean behind my servants, right? Like one of the poor people. You come up and you be with the servants. It's almost like he hires her, gives her a job. Hey, you have first pass. And then when they're all sitting down for a rest or having a meal, he, he invites Ruth over. Hey, you don't need to sit over there. Come, come on over here. Everyone else is going, oh, what is he doing? Like this poor Moabite woman? And yet he welcomes her in. She's family. And when she heads home, he makes sure that it's piled up. He, he is so generous with her. Boaz is so well-respected. He, he is loved. In fact, look at verse 4. I, I love this. Chapter 2, verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. How many of you, when your boss walks in, you say, Hi, God bless you. I mean, you might really like your boss, but you, you're not greeting him this way. I mean, Boaz is popular even with his servants. He is loved, he's respected, he's generous. And we see that throughout this entire story. He loads Ruth up with a bunch of barley, sends her home, and we see what happens next. Skip all the way to verse 19 of chapter 2. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she, Ruth, told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now, I learned this week that to the ancient Jews, as they would have read that portion of the story, they'd be going along, and they know what's happened. But the way that Ruth says her sentence, by putting Boaz's name at the end, it would heighten the drama. It would make it more dramatic. 
It's almost like if this was a movie. Ruth's coming home. She's lugging this big old barley pouch. And Naomi happens to come outside and sees her. And her eyes get really wide. And the music starts playing. And Naomi's like, wow, where did you get all this? And and, uh, Ruth's response, well, the man's name is Boaz. And as soon as she says the name, like the drums hit, the music swells, and everyone knows, okay, the love story just got really, really sweet and sickening, all right? It's it's going on now. So Naomi realizes, this guy, I think he likes her. And Boaz, there's something else that you need to know about him. Look at verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She's referring to her husband and her sons, right? That Boaz has honored them by taking care of Ruth, which in a sense takes care of Naomi. But then notice this. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Let's talk about that idea for a second, this redeemer. In ancient Jewish culture, If someone went into debt, they could sell their land to help pay off the debt. But it was like they still held the rights to the land. So that if they ever got the money again, they could come back and purchase the land back. They could redeem it. But if they couldn't do it themselves, they could actually have one of their family members do it. Because remember, family takes care of family. And so this family member could come and buy the land on behalf of the family. Now, also, if someone passed away, this redeemer could come and also purchase it and would then treat it as if it still belonged to the dead person and it would continue on down the line. It was to help protect families. Well, a redeemer had to have three things. First, they had to have the right to be a redeemer. All right? In other words, they have to be family. They have to be kin. Second, they have to have the resources. I mean, they've got to have the money. You're not just going to give the land back for free. So they have to be able to pay full price for it. But then third, they have to have the resolve. They have to actually want to purchase it. They weren't forced to. No one was going to twist their arms and make them do this. They didn't have to if they didn't want. So they had to have those three things. Well, Boaz, already we've seen he's family. He's from the same clan as Elimelech. He seems to have the resources. It seems that he has a lot of land. And also, it seems that there's a possibility that he actually has the resolve, that he might actually want to do this. And and so when Naomi sees the big pile of barley, when she hears that it was Boaz who gave it, Naomi thinks, I need to play matchmaker. And so she comes up with a plan. Look at it in chapter 3 with me. Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? This idea of rest for a woman was the idea of finding a husband, having a house, having children. I don't know why having children is considered restful. But this is the idea that, that you, you know, I'm going to help find rest for you. Because Ruth is having to work her butt off to help care for Naomi. And so this is Naomi like, you've been such a gift to me. Let me give a gift to you. Let me help you find rest. Let me help you find a husband. Verse 2. Is not Boaz a relative with whose young woman you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. All right, now, you're probably listening to this going, what? Like, you're supposed to go in, uncover his feet, lay down at his feet, and this is like romantic? All right, well, here's the, here's the answer. I don't know. I, I, I looked at several scholars. I mean, some, they make some conjectures and ideas, but they don't really know. The, the most honest scholars seem to say, yeah, we, we don't fully understand this. We don't know if this was like maybe a tradition just locally for that time, or did Naomi just come up with this? We don't understand. But here's what we do understand. That somehow Naomi comes, does it, and it works. And by doing so, she shows incredible respect and yet also incredible boldness. Think about it. She's poor, approaching a rich man. She's a Moabite, approaching an Israeli. She, she is nothing in the eyes of the culture, approaching a man who's everything in the eyes of the culture. And yet somehow she's being bold and humble at the same time. In fact, look at verse 9. What happens is she ends up startling Boaz. He wakes up in the middle of the night. It's dark out. He senses someone there. So he kind of probably kicks him and goes, who's there? Notice what happens. Verse 9, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. The idea of spreading your wings is the idea of a mother hen putting her wings over her chicks to protect them to draw them in close so that they feel safe. When a Jewish man would propose marriage or during the marriage ceremony, he would often take out the outer cloak and he'd put it over his wife because his outer cloak would be a part of his identity. You'd, you'd notice the guy because, I mean, he wore the same clothes every single day. So for him to take it off for a moment, put it over his wife, saying, this one's mine. She will be identified with me. I will cover her. I will protect her. The idea of spreading the wings over and drawing them in. Do you see her boldness? And yet there's also this humbleness, this humility. I'm your servant, but will you protect me? Girls, if you're not married, the culture's going to tell you all sorts of ways to find a guy. They're going to tell you that there's certain things you need to wear. There's certain things you need to do. They're going to tell you all sorts of ways to, to find a husband. I'm telling you right now, you don't have to do those things. Instead, be respectful and yet confident in who God has made you to be. Because God can provide. And so you trust him. You seek him. And as you do, you stay humble before God, but confident in how he's working in, in you and through you. And God can do what he wants to do. So you don't have to do what the culture says. You do what God says. You seek after him. And in that humble confidence, God can work. And he does for Ruth. There was no hanky-panky going on here. We see Boaz talk about her as being this upright, upstanding woman. We've seen Boaz already as this upstanding, upright man. In fact, he's so upright that he says, you know what? I am a redeemer, and I will redeem you. However, I've already looked into the matter. There's another guy who's actually closer than I am. Now we get the tension in the story. Oh, no. You mean 
someone else could actually, no, 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 it's supposed to be Ruth and Boaz. How could some other guy get in here? Now the love triangle begins. Boaz wastes no time. He heads right to the city gates that next morning. The city gates were the place where everything uh, took place, all the legal matters, civic matters. It's kind of where the elders of the city would sit. Boaz shows up, sees some elders like, all right, guys, I'm going to have you help me with something. Oh, and he just happened to see the other redeemer walking by. Notice it with me in chapter 4. I think, what are we at? Verse uh, 3? 2, 3. All right. Then he said, so he finds the Redeemer. They all sit down together. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Can you imagine the Jewish audience in that moment? Like, no, no, this, no, this can't be happening. Like, this was such a good story, and all of a sudden now the bad moment happens, and oh, they're so frustrated. How in the world? They wanted Boaz and Ruth to get together, and now this guy's saying, I will redeem it. But notice, Boaz has only talked about the land so far. He now says, oh, hang on, I forgot one really important detail. He says next, verse 6, sorry, verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. The way Jewish custom was that if a man died without leaving any sons behind, then one of the brothers or one of these redeemers would have to then attempt to help give her a son, and that son would be counted to the deceased father so that the line could keep going. This redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Whether this Redeemer had a legitimate reason for not doing it, whether it was just racism, no way he's taken a Moabite as a wife. We don't know. But what we do know is that Boaz does. Boaz comes through, he purchases the land, he marries Ruth, and they lived happily ever after. But the story's not done. There's an epilogue. It happens in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Uh, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now you understand why Elimelech just happened to go into a section of Moab, where one of his sons just happens to marry Ruth, who just happens to have a change of heart to tie in to Naomi, who they then just happen to decide to come back to Bethlehem. 
where she just happens to end up in the field of Boaz, who just happens to be a redeemer, who just happens to have the right to be the redeemer, who has the resources to be the redeemer, and the resolve to be the redeemer, who just happens to know there's another redeemer who's closer, but who refuses. So he just happens to marry Ruth. They just happen to have a child who they name Obed, who just happens to have Jesse, who ends up having David, who becomes king of Israel. And that king of Israel is the one that God promised the line of Jesus. Without Ruth, without Boaz, we don't have Jesus. God was orchestrating this whole entire thing. Even in the time of the judges, when it is dark, it's bleak, the cycle of apostasy is going on, God was still working I hope this gives you incredible confidence to realize that even in your darkest moments, God is at work. He has not abandoned you. He loves you. And anything difficult you're going through, the book of Hebrews tells us to treat as discipline because God is disciplining you like a son, as a daughter, as a child. Because a good parent disciplines their kid and helps to get them to the place that they need to be so that they can thrive. So if you find yourself in a really tough spot right now, if it's a really dark time in life, I want you to know God's with you. He's not abandoned you. Do you trust him? Because he's working. Because you might just find yourself having a just-so-happened moment. But not only do we see Jesus through the line of Boaz and Ruth, we actually see Jesus also in the story of Boaz himself. Because did you notice how incredibly generous Boaz was? And yet when we look at the person of Jesus, we see how incredibly generous he is to us spiritually poor. Did you see what a man of integrity Boaz was? And yet Christ was so full of integrity, he never even sinned. Did you notice how Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. He had the right, the resources, and the resolve. And Jesus, when he took on human flesh, gained the right, he became our kin, part of our family, when he took on humanity. He had the resources himself, his sinless life. And he had the resolve. When he came to earth, he knew what was ahead for him. He knew the cross was the plan. And yet he did it anyway. Jesus is dripping all over this story. And I want you to see just how much Jesus loves you. Because you and I are Ruth. We were spiritually poor. We were spiritually outcast. We did not deserve a relationship with our God. And yet Jesus came to redeem us, to buy us back, so that we could come into a relationship with our God. This is why we worship. This is why as a church family, we seek to live Jesus-centered lives. This is why we want to invite people to find and follow Jesus. Because Jesus was so generous. He gave it all for us. And so how in the world could we be so selfish to just keep it for ourselves? Instead, let us rejoice. Let us share. Let us be generous. Let us love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived and very possibly leave behind what Jesus left behind. 
So no matter what you're going through, I want you to realize God's in control. He's got this. And he's drawing you more and more to Christ, who's your kinsman redeemer. Father, I just thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you for the, the power that is there. Uh, may we not just see a, an awesome story that, that you wrote in the lives of, of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, but a story that ultimately points to Jesus. Not only one that points physically to Christ, because it's through Boaz and Ruth that you bring the Messiah. But it's also how you were so perfectly in love with us. You were generous. You, you were, uh, lived a life of integrity. And even though you never sinned, you went and died a sinner's death in our place so that we might be redeemed. And so on this Mother's Day, we say thank you. Jesus, thank you for all you've given. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for who you are. Father, I just pray you'd help us, these poor spiritual roots, to attach ourselves to you that you would be our God, that where you lodge, we will lodge. Where you go, we will go. Where you lead, we will follow. So Father, I pray that you just continue to draw each and every one of us, not just in this moment, but throughout our days, that we would seek you and seek to make you known. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.